it's not, there's no way to really stop it. Our particular resonance is largely determined by our physical shape, and here you can see examples of phi ratios, the ratio of 1.6 to 1, which we find repeated often in nature. Now this is just an example of, it's also, also sometimes called the golden mean. Phi ratio, Leonardo da Vinci spent a lot of time studying this. If you look within your body, we're actually formed around the so-called phi ratio, not the pi, not pi. That's another number, interesting number, but this is phi. And even our finger digits are basically our bones throughout our body. Our bodies are proportioned around this phi ratio. And this is one example why in our particular universe here, the energy just naturally flows because we have a natural inherent frequency proportions of our own bodies. If you look within your um, finger digits, if this is one, the next digit would be 1.6. And if this is one, the next finger digit is 1.6, all the way throughout your body. If you go, for example, from your, uh, your belly button is basically a phi ratio between the top of your head and your feet, and even in your face, the, the eyes are about a phi ratio. We find this shape a lot throughout nature, and various artists have seen this, and it creates a certain set of proportions that you and I and the nature around us, plant petals, and all sorts of uh, living things are kind of shaped around this phi ratio. And here's like the three entre is basically formed around these same ratios. If you were to measure it with phi ratio rulers, you'd see this phi ratio embedded throughout lots of sacred shapes. And um, it, Leonardo da Vinci did the measure of man, which has phi ratio shapes built in throughout it. So we're naturally proportioned around the phi ratio. And apparently women are more perfectly proportioned to the phi ratio than men. Because they're more perfect. <laughs> and that's, but these shapes actually matter. Parthenon was built around phi ratios. Now the reason I'm mentioning this is because intuitively you and I find phi ratios very appealing to be and we find phi ratio based shapes feel comfortable to be around. If you give people different shapes, they will inherently gravitate towards phi ratio buildings and so forth. And studies have been done on this. And people a while back used to design things naturally around the golden mean the golden ratio. But in modern times, our buildings are built more around kind of economic efficiency criteria. So we've lost some of this, and maybe that's changed some of our resonance a bit. Okay. But the idea is basically this, that objects that are at the same resonance are going to spontaneously communicate information, just like radio. Right? As a kid, I used to build crystal radios, and I was always amazed at this little device I built from Radio Shack, this little one, you know, 101 kid, you can figure it into a crystal radio, would receive information without a battery. There would be the radio station. It wasn't very loud, but it was there, and you didn't need a battery. And it's the same way with tuning forks. If you have two tuning forks and you hit one, the other one, even across the room, will start to ring, right? And we were just hearing resonance a few minutes ago, musical resonance with the guitar. Resonance is a fundamental scientific principle, and it explains how energy propagates, and how we hear sound, and how light moves, and all types of energy, and so forth. But the main point is that once you identify the frequency of something in some way, I'm not saying logically identify the frequency of your radio station. If you identify the frequency in some way, you will spontaneously get the information from this. And you've all had some sort of experience with this when you know a loved one has been in trouble or you just have the feeling to call somebody or something and there was a good reason to do it. That's because you are resonating with that partner or family member or so forth because you have a bond 
and you naturally, spontaneously share that information. I'm sure you either had that experience or know people who've had that, where you just had a feeling to call and there was an emergency going on. Now, as Timothy was just saying, because we're coming in here, in this situation where people are in distress right around us that we know we're going to be getting lots of signals and resonance, and it can be a little challenging to focus a little bit because you're connected to a lot of people. Uh, and uh, just as an example, you know, I had this feeling to go visit a condo I used to live in in North 28th Street, and I and I ran into, I, I went up there Thursday night and was just shocked by the devastation. And we went up there and the friend, you know, we were able to talk to him, I've known a long time. And it was just kind of this feeling I needed to go up there, you know, but there was this person I knew who was really good to talk to him and, you know, give him my phone number if he needed help and so forth. So this is net kind of intuitive examples of our intuition that we've all had. The RV procedure that was developed with Stanford Research Institute and all these other phenomena you and I have been surrounded by that we've been labeled as psychic phenomena, you know, ESP, telepathy, telekinesis, paranormal, paranormal, yeah, par paranormal, it's all just resonance. If you want to give it the label paranormal, you can, but that's just a way of avoiding what it is. It's actually normal. <laughs> yeah. It's paranormal from the point of view of our formal institutions because they want to keep the resonance going in one way. It's just what institutions do. It's not because they're bad. It's institutions like continuity. And they keep it focused, and especially our Western society wants it focused in a certain way with what we've been brought up with. But this is kind of a juncture from that. It doesn't quite fit in. Of course, we know from quantum mechanics that everything is kind of a seamless wave, the waves of energy at a quantum level. So this kind of idea is already built in there. It's just how does it trickle up to our level of reality, something that hasn't been completely fleshed out yet. But it isn't really power to anything. It's actually, uh, let's just save the questions to the end because we will, we will just keep your question in mind. Um, so, next slide. So this is the re so you're all familiar with resonance with music and so forth. By the way, I was the one who did the graphics here. I still love looking at these artists. They're, they're excellent. But this is the Newtonian mechanistic Cartesian paradigm we've grown up with in school. It says it's all like gears, and there has to be this direct line of causation, right? And A has to go before B to go to C, and it's a very mechanistic view of the universe. But you know, when you apply this mechanistic model to, uh, to medicine, and to energy and to lots of other aspects of nature, it doesn't work very well. You know, you and I, we're not machines. You could look, you could look at our body that way, the different organs and what do they do, but you know to feel, when you're healthy, you can't describe that from a medical point of view. There's really no way to describe that from that point of view. Or when you're feeling happy or whatever you're feeling, it doesn't fit with any mechanistic point uh, paradigm. But this paradigm was very popular you know, in the, in the Renaissance periods and, and, and later on when it came about. And there's something about it that our mind likes, and it's very powerful. You can get people to the moon with it. Um, but uh, it will never describe free energy. It will never describe the e-catalytic engine that you might have heard about. It doesn't describe these nuclear and subnuclear processes that are really increasingly having an impact on our world. And it doesn't describe remote viewing or any of the phenomena that we're talking about here. So this paradigm, while it's very powerful, and it's not inherently good or bad, it just has limits. It's a powerful paradigm, but it's a limited paradigm. It only works at a certain level of reality, as Einstein was able to show, that this is a subset, and that at a broader scale, there's much more going on. And so here's where it gets interesting. <laughs> and this is one of my favorite diagrams. <laughs> 
is that what we perceive as reality is a tiny fraction of what's going on around us, a really small fraction. And there's some books that have come out recently, uh, Incognito by David Eagleman and others, I mean, just a couple months old, where they're re we didn't have some of these books when we were working on this opening minds back in, in 2000. But uh, basically, we get about 40 million bits of information into our mind every second, into our brain physically from our senses. We're only aware of 16 bits of that, which is less than a thousandth of a percent. And this is why you could be in circumstances and get a gut feeling about something, but you don't have any empirical verification. It's because you've said something, something's happened. You know, it could be a reaction to a person, a situation, and you have a gut feeling. The reason you get that is because the gut. There's more neurons in your digestive tract than in your brain. <laughs> Read David Gershon's book, The Second Brain. It's a different type of neuron. The gut thinks. Our whole body thinks. This is the point. Our heart is, uh, it processes information. Uh, you know, we've been focused on the brain, but the brain only has a little bit of information there. The rest of it's in our uh, undermined, as some people like to call it. I don't like to call it the subconscious because it almost seems like it's something down there in the basement. But it's not in the basement. It's right here. I maybe call it the paraconscious. It's, it's kind of right next to it. The information is there in your body, in your awareness, but it's not in your conscious mind. And so we need to be able to filter information, to focus. There's nothing inherently wrong with that, to go about our lives every day. There's a cost to focusing too much, which is that there's a cost of creativity and a cost of perception. There's a lot of studies that have come out recently that show that people that daydream actually do better on tests later on than people that are too focused for too long. There's a lot of uh, data coming out showing that this other aspect of our mind that's been called the default network, that's been kind of shunted aside as something that's just lesser, actually is doing a lot and it's essential to our creativity to have that ability to daydream, to let the other aspects of our mind actively dream in addition to having strong conscious focusing processes. They actually work together. It's not that there's one or the other, you get both. The conscious mind can watch what the daydreaming mind is doing and pick out good stuff from there. You need both, but we really haven't structured that into our work schedules, so a lot of us are really focused all the time. We don't get enough of those breaks. And what the study shows is if you have those breaks just to allow yourself to perceive the other 16, beyond the 16 bits, you'll get what else is going there. Mm -hmm. um, but often you're in situations where you can't. But the real point is that what we perceive around us, what you see going on in this room right now, the sound of my voice and the shades of light and the rain, that's only 16 bits a second out of 40 million that you have available to you. So basically, the idea is you have a lot more information available to you than you realize. And that's something that we can tap into with RV. Okay, so this is the inventor, one of the inventors of this modern RV system. Everyone know who this is? This is Ingo Swan. And uh, I met Ingo several times at some of the IRVA conferences, and I fortunately got to meet him just before he passed away in Manhattan last, uh, last May. He finally got in contact. We had been playing this game, Let's RV Ingo's Location, for about a year, my partner Susan and I. We used to bike around lower Manhattan, and we'd say, let's just kind of grok where he is. <laughs> this is the master breaker. Ingo was hired by Stanford Research with uh, intelligence agency funding, CIA, DIA, and others, to find out how he did it. He was the, one of the best viewers that people knew at the time. And he originally was able 
to, in a test in New York City at NYU, um, affect these thermistors that had been sealed in these canisters, and they had them hooked up to instruments, and they'd say, Ingo, make that one change temperature, it would go up. You know, Ingo, do this one, you could just, at will, do this. Uh, and they got him to Stanford Research Institute, and Hal Putoff, who I've talked to a couple of times, you may be familiar with this story. They had a magnetometer buried in the ground, about a foot underground for some other experiments, and they said, Ingo, put your mind on the magnetometer and start to wave around. And it would never do this. It's a highly calibrated instrument. Ingo is a natural, <laughs> natural psychic. None of us, I, I will never be like Ingo, probably most of you. This is someone who was, uh, I, I shouldn't call him special or anything, because when I met him in his, finally met him in May, he said, this is normal. He goes, what's going on out there on the street? What people think is normal, that's subnormal. So he didn't want to call this paranormal or anything else. To him, being able to put your mind at something at a distance and get the information was a natural ability that he could do. He was tested extensively um, at uh, Stanford Research Institute. And he was the one who was able to break down in his mind what we, he was doing to teach us a system. Now, it's just one way to access this information. It's a way to get the conscious mind to shut up for a while. No, I have a lot of challenges with that too. Just be quiet for a while and listen. <coughs> listen. You know, we were doing that wonderful little meditation before we started. There's various ways that you can quiet your mind down, but it's really essential to be able to do RV well, to separate the signal from the noise. Essentially, we would have a distant target. When Ingo started, there wasn't paper targets. They would give him, well, they started out with objects in boxes, and he got really bored with that. So he said, you know, this is trivializing my abilities. If you want to know what's in the box, open the box. I can put my mind anywhere in the universe. So they said, well, what are we going to do? And apparently, he was floating around his pool one night in this apartment they'd rented for him. And he heard this voice come in at 45 degrees from the right. He said, try coordinates. He said, Try coordinates. And they didn't, and geographic coordinates, you know, longitude and latitude. <coughs> and they thought, it's never going to work. He was about to get on the plane to go back to New York. And, um, I, they said, okay, okay, we'll try it. Well, it worked. They got out a huge, they went to the bookstore, got a huge atlas, you know, and they got very archaic locations and uh, very specific places where you wouldn't know if I gave you the longitude and the latitude, and he was able to nail it every time. Not every time, but, you know, enough to show that it worked. Very specific details. I mean, this map was good enough. Sometimes they had to get photographed to see if he was right, but he'd always be right in the end. So they found it worked with coordinates, and after that they realized it could be really anything that you could assign numbers to, the viewer could see where it was in their mind. In essence, Ingo created what's called the CRV system. I'm not a big guy on systems. This is just one person who created a system that a lot of us learned from, but there's, it's just tapping into that ability. And what that ability is, is learning to listen to very subtle signals in your awareness. This is a controlled process because basically the viewer is told to sit down, get in your seat, calm down, and describe what you perceive at the target location. It could be just that, the target location, be anything. And the information to a trained viewer will start to come across. The viewer learns how to separate out what's conscious monkey mind signals from what the real signal is. That's really the essence of our being. Ingo had to naturally do this, but we all have this ability to some degree, as I will attempt to show you as we go. Here he is with uh, Russell Targ. You might have seen Russell. He's come here many times uh, and helped him. 
who I ran into uh, at Ingo's Memorial uh, also, and I got to ask him a number of questions. Uh, I said, how, is it really true that we can't figure out how the extraterrestrial technology works? Is it true that the defense companies have this and that it's being withheld from us? Or, but he goes, oh, they have it, but they can't figure it out. <laughs> Hal has multiple security clearances. If Hal says it, it's real. Okay. So there's, there it is about you. That's good. Thanks. Uh, here he is. Uh, this is uh, uh, this is Pat Price. Pat was also another natural psychic. Worked for the Burbank Police Department. Crime rate was very low while he was police commissioner in Burbank. He could see the crimes as they were being committed and would send the squad car out there. <laughs> this guy was amazing. If you've talked to people that worked with him. As one viewer told me, if Pat viewed it, you could take it to the bank. Um, he didn't miss. He was always accurate. Hmm. Him, he, Pat and Ingo viewed something, uh, a, a practice target for the Central Intelligence Agency that was so accurate, it's why they agreed to fund it. And we heard Kit Green talk at the IRVA conference two summers ago. And he described to us the three cases, one of which involved Pat, that convinced them to fund it. Kit was the guy who manned the strange desk at the CIA. They have a strange desk. It's where they do the UFO and all the weird stuff. And Kit's in charge of it. He didn't tell us this when he spoke at Irva, but I found out later reading Grant Cameron's book about UFOs recently. And Kit was in charge of this. What's Irva? International Remote Viewing Association. It's an association of people that study this process. And Kit told us one of these, number of sessions that he said it wasn't a question of maybe it works it just there was no doubt these were blind targets some uh, targets nobody could know about that showed him that there were special people people like had and ingo that could really nail it and if they could do it maybe other people could be taught to do this you, you know how the intelligence agencies and defense uh, establishments would work they want to get information any way they can so Pat was another very accurate viewer. This is actually uh, how put up many years earlier. So Pat's another viewer. Pat used another system, which I'm not aware of what it was, and it wasn't teachable. Ingo, the difference was Ingo created a system that we could learn. Pat created a system that uh, was his own. He's, people that are naturally good at something can't always teach it, but Ingo was able to teach it. So here's one of Pat's sessions. This was. Uh, a target in the semi-palatinist region of the USSR. And they gave it to Pat to view, and he was able to, even though they didn't have this picture at the time, he was able to really reproduce it very accurately. You can see, this is a gantry crane. It was at a facility that was designed, it was like a Star Wars program, you know, using nuclear uh, vision to create lasers. In any case, they didn't know what it was. They thought they would attempt to find out. Pat died before they uh, got the feedback, before they were able to get someone inside the installation. But he described these big metal bars inside and so forth. Everything that he described was there once they got someone in the building. It was a science conference, and, and so we invited people, and they were able to see what was there. But this was the CIA artist's rendition of something that they saw. The reason they used pictures back then and not photographs is they didn't want the Russians to know how good our spy satellites were. So they would have an artist draw it. And that's why from this time period, you see a lot of drawings because that wouldn't reveal the extent of our satellite. In any case, this is what it looked like. That's a person. It's a huge gantry crane. And this is what Pat was in. Oh, wow. So this is the type of thing that convinced them that this uh, worked because there was no photographs at the time. It was really 
Pat never saw this picture. He just drew this, and later on they were able to. So, okay, next one. Pat, unfortunately, uh, uh, heard, uh, he, he died very early on, and there was some feeling that uh, it could have been the Soviets. They were using him against Soviet facilities every day, and it could be that it was some sort of retaliation. We're not, we're not sure if we're as far as that. But in any case, here's an example of someone that learned to do it, like you and me, who didn't think they had any ability. This is Hela Hamid, who was Ingo's friend from New York City, another artist. They said, Ingo, do you know anyone else we could work with to test who's not naturally psychic? So Ingo asked Hella to come out to Stanford, and um, she became one of the best viewers in the whole unit. And she wasn't someone who thought they had any ability. And the whole point of this is, you might have some ability you don't even know you have. It may not be psychic perception or anything like this, it could be something else, but the point is you can have abilities and not you know, you even have them until someone encourages you to explore them. Okay, so let's take a look at an example of how this works. It's a practice target. And you give, the viewer doesn't see the target ahead of time. It's hidden in a folder. And the idea is you have the viewer basically just sit down, quiet your mind, and describe what you're per perceiving at the target site. That's the only information you get. So what's in the folder, that picture? That, that mm -hmm. picture, okay. Uh, this is the way we use to train people. This is once you're doing other types of sessions, it would be double blind, but to train people. So let's take a look at what they got. This is a sample picture that's in a folder. And this is just a beginner in, from one of the classes. The person gets flowing, soft, meadow, natural. Um, and you can see just in the beginning, she's already kind of locked onto the, the essence of it. Next slide. Uh, and again, she says, outside, flowers, smells good. So this is someone just with two days of training can already kind of get a kind of a lot. You can see some of the pictures that she drew flowers and so on. Next. This is kind of an example of some of the data that you get uh, during a viewing session. Now, I like to call it resonant viewing. I don't think of it as being remote because if it was really remote, you wouldn't be able to perceive it. <laughs> it's kind of more like radio stations. Every radio station in the world is around us right now. Cell phones, right? It's all there. If you don't have the equipment to translate it, it's there. But it's not a remote signal. The signals are here. All the electromagnetic signals of the universe in one form are right going through us all the time. And it's a question of learning to perceive, identify the resonance. In this case, the viewer, if it works properly, has actually asked their undermined processes, their unconscious processes, to take a little break from running your life for a few minutes and just describe something else that has nothing to do with you. And if it works properly, they get all sorts of accurate information, grass, and light, greens, and colors. The way we evaluate these sessions, you just look at the colors and then everything, see, you know, this is a match point, what you see. There's very complicated ways to score it, but uh, this is the essence of kind of what the data looks like in the beginning. Okay, and there's kind of the summary at the end. Meadow, dirt, colors, Here's a Washington Monument across from the Lincoln Memorial. That's where I got to go last April to the citizen hearing on disclosure, which was quite Bicycle ride, they have bike share too now in Washington, DC. So you just get your bike and tool around, it's a lot of fun. Here's the target, hidden target. Next. And this is what the viewer got now. The viewer got this so quickly they thought they must be wrong. I said, there's no way this could be the Washington Monument. And they write it right down. This is the noise column on the side. The essence of this 
it's a type of resonance, but you want to separate out the resonance of your conscious monkey mind from the actual signal. You can kind of see this like a calibration process if you like to practice this sort of thing. What's really at the target site and what are you making up? If you think you're making it up just because it's too loud and it's too obvious, uh, you write it down on the site. So this person, Christy, he already thought that he was making this up. He said it can't be the Washington Monument. So he walked in his mind down the reflecting pool and ended up at the Lincoln Memorial. <laughs> and that's on the back side of the picture. So he was completely <laughs> this is just within five minutes. They're not always like this. I'm just showing you examples when they do uh, really match quite, quite well. Next. Okay, so here's a race car, race track. Next. This was something Ron Russell did, something you know, Ron. And you look here, he draws a race car. Even the shape is very accurate to the image in the slide. Uh, he said in his mind, it can't be a race car, so he described, went on to describe a stadium full of people. <laughs> and he spoke with a race car in a stadium. Now here's the thing about this. When you get really accurate data, your conscious mind almost doesn't like it because it didn't do it. Right? It's saying, mm, I didn't do this, so mm. I have to put it down. And this is why you put down the best sessions that you do, you think, oh, it can't be that. When you're doing the session, you don't know if it's right or not. You have no clue whether you're completely making this up, it doesn't matter because every session where you learn something is a good session, just like life. But the point is that you don't know if it's correct or not. You just are following the instructions and you will often, when you get accurate data, uh, dis it, right? Because your conscious mind says, I didn't do that, so it can't be. <laughs> it, it's, it's a fascinating learning process to see how your mind really works. But here's the uh, White House. And notice the fountain here. Okay, next. And here's kind of looks like the White House and says fountain. It's even in the right place. So we know that the, uh, the, the viewer really uh, locked on even. Sometimes when people view targets, they don't come in from the same angle. They come in from a different point of view. Uh, and uh, in this case, he got something that I can identify as pretty closely to something that looks like the one White House. He then says it's a power big building, you know. It's, I can't quite agree with this resolution, but uh, you know, majestic and so forth. Next. Uh, now, this is the interesting thing about the previous session, by the way. It wasn't the right target. It was the next target in the pile. I had a pile of targets. He actually viewed that one. <laughs> this happens sometimes because the viewer looks at the target in the folders. Their mind says, that's boring. I'm going to view this one. It's called displacement. It, it's not supposed to, you're supposed to train the person to view what, if you viewed whatever was interesting, you would never focus. This is part of the process. We learned this from all the research that's been. Okay, here's a, one of the uh, Saturn V launches. Next, Cape Canaveral. And a person you know, hits a rocket. Uh, this phase three is one stage where you draw. Uh, it's a kind of tea ceremony with two women on either side. And there's kind of the shape, see, higher and then something in the middle, and the person goes on. It's just interesting how they were able to show kind of two shapes with something happening in the center. Uh, each viewer will describe something differently, and this is what makes it interesting, because no two people are exactly alike. Some people are good at smells, tastes, and, and uh, they went, she went on to describe some of this activity between people, so it seemed to match pretty well. Oh, Neil Armstrong first walk in the moon. Let's see what happens here. Next slide. 
And uh, what's another way to write your data in a spiral? Like, um, okay, next. Now this is what we call phase four. This is a more advanced stage that Ingo came up with later. Uh, and in this case, they get burning, launch, waiting before something important is about to happen, preparing for a big event, metal, fabric, anxious, so forth, uh, milling around, buzz. We can give the viewer movement exercises. And this is something, if you've been with Russell, he likes to do this right at the beginning of the session. Because Russell uses a more informal system before Ingo even came along, where it's just much more spontaneous. It is spontaneous, anyway. And once the viewer's at the location, you can actually ask them to move around the target site. You can move them forward in time. You can move them back in time, uh, uh, above and below, and so forth. So uh, next slide. So there's a lot of potential to do this. Uh, group people preparing for event of you know importance involving projecting something into motion. That's a pretty good target time. Okay. Simeon, can you explain the line? That's oh yes. So thank you. The line you see at the top. This is what Lehman Blue makes it work. It's called an ideogram. This is Ingo terminology. An ideogram, it's a cross between an idea and a hologram. It's the idea that they, they found this from observing natural psychics, is that natural psychics, when they start describing something, their hands will start to move around a little bit. They'll get some motion in their body. It's the autonomic nervous system sending unconscious information, pre-verbal information to the hands. So if you put a pen in someone's hand, they will start describing the object or the location without even knowing what they're doing. And so it starts by asking the viewer, in this particular system, and you can see this is kind of a written system, there's rules and so forth, but this is the system I'm familiar with. There's probably many other ways to do this. You let the viewer move around a pen, draw an integrum, then you ask them to describe it in very low-level language, not to say what it is, it's not a, a rocket like launching. I mean, is it hard, is it soft, is it smooth? These are the sorts of things that come through resonant perception. Easiest, the low-level information. And then, and it's a good question because what you can see in these sessions is it's like an aperture opening up. First, you just look through the keyhole of the door and you just see a little bit of information. And then it grows and it becomes a full-fledged picture sometimes, uh, much more detailed information. You can stop the session for a while and continue it the next day, but the detail often doesn't come for a while. It's a slow process because you know why our brains are mostly involved in running our lives, focusing on what's going on right in front of our eyes. They need to, we need to do this right for survival. And so it takes a while for the information to come through. I don't know whether that means that it's just there all the time and this is the slow part, or if it's because you're locking onto the frequency of it and it's a while before the information comes up. But it's a slow process. You know, if you like slow things, you'll enjoy this. <laughs> because this could take an hour to do one of these sessions. It takes a lot of energy, but the reward is you can show yourself that you did something you didn't think you can do. And then you can ask the question, well, what else can I do that I didn't know that I can do mm -hmm. a yeah. <laughs> It's just a door opener. That's what this is. It's a big yeah. door opener. Okay, uh, it's pretty good. <laughs> um, it was something. Can we go back just for a second? It's the reverse. Maybe I can read it from the screen here. And we'll know what we were looking at. 
guess I ignored the target. Sorry. It was pretty cool. Oh, it was the same target. It was a rocket. Oh, uh huh. It's the rocket. This is her version of the rocket. Smooth metallic. It looks like a rocket. Okay. Big phallic symbol there. Next slide. Oh, this is a fascinating session. Leaning Tower of Pisa. I haven't been there personally. Has anyone been there? Yes. Okay. Let's look what the viewer got. Next slide. So this is what they drew. This is interesting. There's definitely a leaning something, right? But they came into the target from the side, right? They're, the picture is from this coming this way, but they're looking from the side. Now you can see there mountains behind there, which are not in the photo. And sometimes people say, well, they're just picking up your thought. It's telepathy, whatever, whatever that is. They're picking up the monitor's thought if the monitor knows the target or the person who selected the target. In this case, I've never been to the leaning tower. I don't know if there are mountains. But are there mountains? They're hills. I looked at a picture later on from this angle. That's there, but it wasn't in the picture. What this shows us is that the viewer just wasn't viewing their feedback. They were viewing the target site. This is what really should happen if this works properly, even if you don't think you can do this. You actually tune in to the target location as if you were there. It isn't because you're really there, because some people say, is this like astral travel? Is it, you know, are my, is my spirit body projecting there? I don't think so. Not at this level. I'm not saying that's not possible. It seems to be that the viewer is tuning it in so convincingly that it becomes like they're there and they walk around. And we've had people who've gone to locations and walked around later, went to visit these little towns that could be hard and said, oh, it's all there. Yeah. Here's, this is interesting. This is the viewer started channeling in this one. Huh. Greek fish, fishermen, I believe, in the Mediterranean. Next slide. And he went to do his session. You can see it's Karen asked to get the ideogram. We start describing this low-level data. This is just very low-level stuff. How does it feel? You, know, you touch, you, at this point, you touch the paper with your pen or pencil. And you say, how does it feel when I touch it? Does, it, does my pen feel hard or soft? That's how direct this is. Is it slippery? Is it you go through this, it gradually turns into colors and shapes after a while. But next slide. He got a ship at sea, which we know he's on made contact with. Then he began saying, this isn't fair to our people, you're disturbing us, this and that. And I realized he had begun to channel the fish. <laughs> Believe it or not, he became a channeler after this session. And he's an engineer at CU. He had no idea he had this ability. At first, the channeling was rather uncomfortable. It would start anytime he was in a group of people, he would start saying things about them from these Angelics, as he would call them. He wasn't sure who they were at first. And he became uh, okay with it. Uh, this is why I have people sign a release form before they take the class. I'm not responsible for it. So, this channeling, yes, this is something that it, this can open you up into different ways. Okay, next. Okay, eventually we can go on to esoteric targets. This was a crop circle. Uh, that first crop circle I ever saw was this on a page. <laughs> this is where it started for me. I'm gonna let me just move through some of these quickly. This is my first crop circle, and uh, you can see it's a circle with energy going in and out. This is before I ever went to England. Mm. This was it, <laughs> and I had to go there to find out what this was later on because I got all this weird stuff in here about energy and extraterrestrials and all this. And what is this? So I ended up going there, and now I give tours of it there. To, See these things, people holding circles. We can use RV to study these esoteric targets, as we call them. Maybe that's not a good word, uh, whatever you'd like to call it. 
balls of light, we can, you know, once you view Washington Monument, kind of regular nuts and bolts targets, you could send the viewer to other less verifiable targets, which isn't, you know, it's, we can't verify what the viewer is getting. We can verify the Eiffel Tower, but this, it's a ball of light, someone photographed while we were right behind there, that Wilbur O'Hill, and we want to see, well, what's that? Let's send a viewer there to see what they get. You've heard other people do this, I'm sure. Ingo Swan. Ingo did this. Now, yes, I did ask Howell about penetration, by the way. This is Ingo's famous book about being asked to view from for some secret agency the moon. He got in trouble. Uh, he saw stuff. He saw stuff. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> well, it's interesting because Russell Tark said he thought it was a work of science fiction on coast to coast. I'm just saying what Russell said. I asked Hal at Ingo's memorial because Ingo passed away this you know earlier uh, last year and uh, this year and. Uh, Hal said, absolutely not. I was there with you. We used to talk. We were concerned about this. You know, that the entities came here and started interacting with it. So Hal's view is that it's not science fiction. We can view you as the UFO. I mean, this is fun to view these different targets. This was the Rockadine facility in California, which someone wanted me to view. And the view, viewer got, and this is all blind. You've got this underground facility connected to a nearby city, all sorts of cool stuff. But I want to show you the last one here, which is really interesting. Which, again, this is the type of session that, if you have any doubt, if you've been doing this, will reaffirm your conviction that this is a real phenomenon. A viewer from uh, somewhere, I won't say who exactly this person was, wanted to test us. So she gave us this photograph of Area 51, which I believe is taken by uh, what is it? Uh, Lear. Was it Roger Lear? Or uh, John Lear? This is John Lear's photograph when he snuck in. Sorry. I've been to enough conferences. Uh, I was in 51. Yes. So before hearing you over here. What's that? I just having a little trouble hearing you. Okay. So this is a picture of Eric 51. They test Soviet planes at the time. This is a MiG fighter in front. This is where they test other people's planes. We don't know what else is out there. I mean, there could be a lot more. Well, it's also the place where they reverse engineer. Reverse engineer. Um, Soviet planes. UFOs and they yeah, those things too. A couple of those. Terrestrials. Could be true. But you, how do you know unless you view it? Right? It's a story. So someone gave. He says, "How good are you guys?" So I I called a friend of mine who had taken my class in Salt Lake City. I called Terry. I said, "Terry, I have a target for you. That's it. Can you do a session?" I know. Next slide. This is what you There's the mix. Yeah. There's the hangers. It's all there. She said, this is, she had never seen that photograph before, at least not consciously. I, it's just sitting on my desk here in Boulder. She's in Salt Lake. I say, got a target for you. That's all you say. You don't want to give the viewer any advance front loading. She draws it, describes it. And of course, being a viewer, she says, I need to go in those hangers. So she explored around inside and found disks. So this is tantalizing. I mean, here we have a good contact in the beginning. Uh, anyway, you can kind of get the idea uh, how this is. And let's, before we start for questions. So I've written about it in Opening Mind, which I have copies back there. And a lot of these same pictures are in there. And personally, I've taken this a little beyond RV now. I call it human fusion. I like the remote viewing process, resonant viewing. But I like people to be able to focus on their own lives, on their own projects, and their businesses, and so forth. So I now. I work with small businesses and inventors and, and entrepreneurs to 
see their own future, see the future possibilities to be able to bring some of that information back now, to view yourself doing this successfully in other possibilities, very much like visualization and so forth, like you've heard, law of attraction. But to use the same RV techniques on your own life in a productive, creative way with doing what you're good at, not just rigging the stock market and predicting what gold futures are going to do, which you can do successfully, by the way. We can talk about that if you want to hear. You have some new research about that. It just came out a couple months ago. But I, I think for me personally, just before we close, and have a few, I think the best use of this is to learn more about yourself. It's not just to be a great viewer. I'll never be an Ingo Swan uh, or a Pat Price, but you don't need to be. Each of us is our own Ingo Swan and Pat Price, and we all have something we're very good at. And it really excites me to help people develop that, and that's what I work through in an eight-week course with people to apply these skills, but to apply it to what you're interested in, what you're excited about, not to another target, not to something that doesn't have anything to do with you, to apply it to you. Anyway, that is where we stand. So let's have some questions. And I've got a few minutes left before we can't get out. <laughs> so, uh, Timmy, th thanks for having me here today, and, and I appreciate this. Oh, anything you're curious about? Uh, let me just talk about the evidence before we go on. The, the most convincing evidence I just heard was there was a guy, Greg Kolodzic, who was showed up at Irvo many times. He was a skeptic. He started doing his own sessions on the stock market, predicting it a week ahead. Not to make money, which people have done, just to see if it worked. He already had a successful job as an engineer. He did a 15-year study and was got a hit rate of 65% over 5,000 sessions, which is no way you're going to do that, predicting stocks up or down. 65 or 55? 65. 65. Uh, he made about 150000 over 12 years, which isn't a lot over a 12 year period, but it showed that you're getting above 50-50, and the statistical significance, which is something we look for to see how reliable, you know, how confident you are, it's very high. Uh, when I heard him several years ago, he'd only done a few studies, but he's been doing it the whole time. And that's the most recent evidence. I think it was published in one of, uh, which journal it was published in, but the studies show that you get more than you would get from guessing. Um, some people, obviously, much more than others. But the information you read from it, there's always debunkers for everything. That doesn't mean it's true. The independent study commissioned by the Congress, Jessica Utz did from UC Davis did the statistics. She concluded there's a real effect here that can't be explained in any principle we know about. So how do you explain a uh, 10-year-old boy gets a message to stay on the sled and allow himself to get hit by a car? Because we all have to leave at some point. Maybe that was his time to leave. Because what? We all have to die at some point. Maybe that was his, the right time for him to die. No, I live. Oh, you did. <laughs> Getting hit you needed to have that experience. You know, uh, just because you could view it doesn't mean it's necessarily your interest to do it. Are you hard of hearing? Yeah. You know, just because you can view something doesn't mean you should necessarily do it. You still have choice. No, it was the but right answer. But it opens up. It yeah, was the right answer. Things that could look bad from one point of view, you know, you know, it's a complicated question. It doesn't mean the process isn't working. Well, I'm, saying, I'm wondering where the information's coming from. That is a good question. So here's it's a very good question. The conclusion that some of us have come to about the way reality really works is that there is no past or future the way we think about it. There is no way you could view some of these events in the future unless it was happening now. So the most current view that we're taking from physics is not the traditional version of quantum mechanics, the Copenhagen interpretation, it's the multiverse interpretation. You might have heard of Max Tegmark. This is actually becoming increasingly popular. The idea is that all the universes exist simultaneously right now. So there's only one big now moment, 
And what you're doing when you view is to temporarily look at another one. There's versions of you in the future doing all sorts of different things that you can view. And let me just say one important thing about this. This is really what's important. Viewing works the best on things that matter to you. Mm -hmm. These are practice targets for fun. But spontaneously, the information will come across, like this gentleman saying, when it's something that's going to affect you, something that's coming up in your life, you're going to get these advanced perceptions. If you look back in your life of people you've met that have changed your life or situations, you can often see that you had premonitions. That would only be possible if all of these events are already happening simultaneously. And our conscious mind, some processes were structures it into this perception of past, present, and future. But it may not really be happening like that. The multiverse interpretation of the universe, parallel universes, suggest that they're all happening simultaneously. And we move through them to give this perception that they all exist. And this is how viewing is possible. And in your own lives, when something really matters to you, something's important, the information is going to spontaneously flow to you more spontaneously than something that's irrelevant. These practice targets are just for fun. It just shows us that the ability is there. So as a sociologist background, yeah. how do you then explain the collectiveness you know, in terms of our consciousness and societal forces such as global warming, industrialization, and you know, the individual influencing that process, or can all these individuals influence a certain process? I think, yeah, that's a really good question. I, you know, the way I see it now, something I think about is we're all like branches on the same tree with the same roots. So we do have individualized structure and our own individual experiences, but we're all part of the same tree at some level, and this sort of shows that that's real. And all of these processes, you know, I'll tell you something, I, Ira and I talk all the time, this sort of phenomena has really made me very confident that our future is going to be very exciting and very positive and very productive. Because I know that each of you have skills that you haven't fully tapped into yet because I found it out myself. And if you haven't tapped into it yet, you will. And so all of these challenges that we face, whether it's economic, the, the way our planet is going, even local weather, challenges us to get in touch with that deeper level of ability. You know, it's like in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, he says you have to keep heating the metal and cooling it to get the impurities out, even though it can be very painful, you won't get really pure metal unless it's heated. And we can look at things that happen in our lives that way, it's kind of showing us who we really are, and we can use it that way if you choose to, I mean, you don't have to. I mean, so. I'm all, I just wonder if this is possible. I'm just working with beginners in Boulder here. Most of these sessions were done there, even though now it's online. Um, well, what else can we do? And of course, free energy would be possible. This has to tap into the same sort of process where it's not limited. You know, we live in such a universe where it seems there's limits, but at some level, it's not limited. Anyway, good, good question. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to just comment on crop circles for just a minute? Since yeah, you know, this is a kind of a unstructured type of resonance because you start with a blank page, it's your ideogram, and you create kind of a structure out of that. Crop circles are kind of like a structured type of resonance. We get a lot of interesting phenomena. What I've seen most frequently around them is battery and camera failure spontaneously as soon as we go into the crop circles. Now there's been a lot of discussion, is it man-made, is it extraterrestrial? I've spoken to people that have seen them created by discs of unknown origin, whatever you want to call them. And well, there are a lot of them have been made by people too, but they all have equally energetic. They all have, the resonance is the same, it doesn't matter who's making them in Simeon's humble opinion. There's a resonance there from the shape and it can affect things that shows us it's doing something, even if it's uh, human made especially, the, the pattern seems more complicated 
The humans took the original patterns and made them much more sophisticated. I've gotten to be friends with these people over the years. They're interested in these sort of topics. So they're not really hoaxes. They're just a type of exploration into resonance and shape from my point of view of the people that I've met. Yeah. Last question. Okay, okay last question. I just yeah. had a comment, actually. I did David Morehouse's remote viewing. Oh, yeah. There are a couple of things. Number one, his targets were um, industrial military. They right. turned me off. It's just like I didn't want to do it anymore. So I, I really applaud the fact that you're working with human vision. Right, yeah. I felt it was necessary to move in that direction. Oh, it was horrible. The second thing is, yep. because it started as a war. It did, it did. There's no doubt about covert. it. Yeah, the covert. Thing is, Black budget. When you talk about the, the now and not being future and past, um, People can remote view a target that's chosen in the future, and when they're remote viewing it, the target hadn't even been chosen when exactly. they get it. So exactly. that just proves that there is no time. And right. This is the type of thing that says our common idea of time must be wrong if this is possible. You could do it where the target hasn't even been chosen yet. There's so many variations of this you can do, and the person still gets it. And if you're wondering how do you know if they get it, is it just me trying to fit it in? No, you can actually take independent judges and have them match the targets who don't haven't been in the room, and you can show that the judges can match the targets to the viewer session, and that shows this is how what Jessica Uds did. Another, I mean, you can show objectively that it matches up much more than it would if it was just random guessing. And these sorts of experiments, like you're mentioning, show us that our idea of time—it's probably not the way it really works. It's probably. Simultaneous, and but that the advantage to us is that you could actually see other possibilities for what you care about, things that you want to work on. And final thing before we close is that it means you can trust a lot of the information. You shouldn't second guess yourself as much as you might do. You can really trust that if you learn to identify within yourself that kind of true source of information. For me, it's usually a very subtle feeling of like a, a, not quite like a voice, but it's a very subtle type of feeling. I know when I get that feeling, that's the true signal. But for everyone, it's a little different. Some people call it the little quiet voice within. You know, I really, that's really what it is for me. In my viewing and in life, I, I trust that voice. And for each of you, you can find that source. It's another aspect of you that you may not be very familiar with. But it's someone you can get to know. It's actually a very good friend. So thank you very much.